everybody, and welcome back to Don't Quit Your Day Job. Uh, my name is Paul, and welcome back to the show. And I would like to welcome Mr. Silent G himself, Mark Tremalia. Uh, Mark, how you doing? Wow. I know it's pretty good, good. right? <laughs> kind of impressed, Brian. You sure beat it into him. Thank you, brother. <laughs> are you doing all good? Doing good. Yeah, yeah. Enjoying the Cali weather. Great. Uh, so this past week, uh, you did Stevie Ray Vaughan as your solo. Um, I did. And that, you know, when I think about your early career in L.A., that wasn't the thing that you were doing. Right. So what I'm interested to know to start off this episode is how you were balancing your guitar influences, because you had to go do like the guitar hero thing, because that was very much the late 80s. Like my impression is if you weren't doing that, then you weren't getting hired. So how are you balancing the things you actually wanted to do and enjoyed playing to the things that you felt like you had to do? Interesting. I, I, uh, I think I just evolved, you know, I came out to LA and we were just playing that very specific sort of, you know, eighties hard rock with shreddy guitar solos, which I had fun doing. There was a lot of players during that era that I, I definitely admired and listened to, but like anything after a while you're, you're listening to it gets kind of stale and you start evolving from there and, you know, you meet other guitar players and they turn you on to things or you kind of go back to your youth. And it's, it's interesting because after I, kind of got out of the hard rock band. I mean, we, we, it, Mariah ran its course and then I joined a band called the Wright brothers, which we unfortunately didn't really have anything happen with us in the industry as far as making it, but it was a really good band and we played some really good shows, but they were like, I kind of listen to it these days and it reminds me of Pearl jam before Pearl jam. Cause it was 90, mm. 91 cool. when we did it. And it's, and it sounds just like a bluesy rock and it really, turned me back into like the guys I grew up listening to like Stevie Ray and BB King and Albert Collins and Albert King. And I had all those, you know, cassettes at that point. And I would just start trying to figure that stuff out. And I try to restrain myself whenever I felt like I had to go, I just go, well, I'm going to hold a note, you know? And then all of a sudden it just worked, worked better that way. And I'll, the, the, the point for me where I really remember it was we were, recording a demo we did an eight song demo at this really nice studio and i w i had to overdub a solo on this ballad that they had and i went in there and uh it was my first take and i just like closed my eyes and and i said you know just play the song from be the beginning and i'll do the solo because i just want to get into the vibe of the song so i kind of play along with it mm -hmm. and like try to lose myself and i finished the solo and uh those guys all like I could see their jaws were all like, holy cow, like, where did that come from? You know, and I went in the studio and that was, I met Duff McKagan again, because he was in the studio and he was like, holy crap, that was really good, bro. You kicked ass on that. And so every time I listen to that solo, I think about that time in that studio and that happening, you know, and walking out there and being like, oh my God, you know, and that was just, it, I guess the whole point of it was like, I didn't just try to be a shredder because that was the thing. I just tried to play what was inside of me. And that was like the first time I really discovered that if I play, if I'm authentic and I play what I feel like it's better for my soul and hopefully it'll make the music better. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously different writers and different artists have different ideas of how they want things to sound. And right. I, I have no problem 
altering, you know, oh, you, you feel more this way or that way. You know, we've talked about that in the past, but like that was the first time I ever remember thinking I don't have an agenda. I don't have to try to shred or tap or play licks that impress people, you know, and, and it's like, instead of doing that, I just played what I thought was good. And I mean, I, I don't think I even played one fast lick the entire thing. I just kind of played as melodic as, as, as I could, you know, I tried to play like a singer and Stevie Ray and BB King and guys that just played, played, played every emotion in the note they played, which I always thought was cool. I just read an interview with George Lynch and he was saying that one of his bigger regrets now is back in the day, he didn't really practice. You know, he could already do the things that he did. You know, this is probably, I'm guessing it was like heyday of Dawkin. And he could do all that stuff, but he didn't really try to break out of what he was doing because, you know, he had success and, and he could, you know, he was really good. He could play a lot of stuff, um, but he didn't try to change. Um, so for you... Again, did was there any point where you actively tried to change? Were you because you've already talked about you would just practice all the time? Um, but what were you were you practicing to be different, or were you practicing to like fit in? I was practicing to be me more than anything. You know, whether it fit in or not didn't really matter to me. I just had a thirst for learning everything on the guitar. You know, and I. I mean, I, I always thought like jack of all trades, master of none, but why couldn't it be jack of all trades, master of all, you know, like <laughs> trying to play, you know, country and trying to play jazz. And, and you know, if I met a guitar player who did something, I, I, I wasn't shy when I talked to guitar players, I'd go, dude, that lick was crazy. What are you doing? You know, like I'd always try to find out all the information I could. And I always loved meeting great guitar players because I could just pick their brain and just, you know, and, and it's funny too, because guys who are great guitar players some of them are really guarded it's really interesting mm. you know you ask them questions and it's kind of like no figure it out yourself and it's just like wow okay i guess i have to figure this out myself you know <laughs> but some guys are just like they they get that it's music and i'm never going to be able to probably play it like they do so they're just going to share with me and say you know dude i practiced this scale i bought this book i mean i, I had a jazz guy who was great and he like showed me a bunch of licks and then he said i had you know, all three Joe Pass jazz books and they changed my life. So I went out and I bought all three Joe Pass jazz books. Didn't change my life, unfortunately, because I, you know, got another gig and I'm, now I'm playing right. country and I'm like, shit, now I got to find out about, you know, different guitar players in that idiom, you know, and there's, I mean, obviously country players are pretty great. So, right. Um, so one last thing here, one, have you ever met Ingve? and two, um, would you want to meet Ingve knowing his sort of crazy reputation? So th those are the, that's the double question. Um, okay, no and no. So I've <laughs> never met him, um, and I don't think I do want to because yeah, I mean, like I, I've, his reputation definitely precedes him, and um, I, I've met enough like guys who are full of themselves that I've you know. <laughs> I've done that. I've been there. And, you know, like some of them are still decent guys and nice to me and assholes to everybody else. And I just it's weird. But um, Ingve, I go to the NAMM show every year. So I've walked by him 20 times. You know, I've seen him walk in the floor of NAMM and I've, I could have had an opportunity like all the other people and just stopped him and said, hey, can I get a picture or whatever? And, but it's it's fine. <laughs> Is he dressed <laughs> like Ingve all the time? Are you kidding? 
I'm, he probably sleeps in those clothes, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> uh, amazing. Okay, uh, let's switch gears here then. What I want to talk about is the, the tours with Mark Knight. So okay. you got out of Bang Tango and then you did Chambers Brothers. Um, and so now how do you how do you hook back up with Mark Knight, who obviously was from Bang Tango, um, because he was not the singer. Joe, Joe was the singer. Mark was the other guitar player. Yeah. So did you you were playing with Mark and then then you left the band and then what happened there, I guess, is really the starting point. So, um Okay, so there's a few different little things in there because from the Chambers Brothers, before I started playing with Mark Knight, um, <clears throat> I, I played with the Brothers Johnson for right. a little while. So that was uh, about a two and a half, three, three months in there. So unfortunately, it never hit the stage. It's never something I could really put on my resume, even though, like, I mean, Quincy Jones came to our rehearsal, you know? So I had cool things happening with that. But as soon as that fell apart, interesting thing was I was kind of regrouping like I'm going to figure out something I, I that that was the first point in my life where I was like maybe I'll put a, like a band together and I'll just find a singer or I'll sing you know and do something and I was also playing in this other band with some friends um, doing the blue stuff you know so um, basically Mark called me out of the blue and, and said hey you know I don't know if you're busy but you know I'm thinking about doing a new record and you know you and i had a great time when we were in europe when we wrote songs and played and you know it sucks that that never worked out but you want to give it a try and i was like yeah it sounds great so i went over and i played on a few tracks and then he decided to do a live band and uh i had a bunch of contacts of, of friends that i was playing with uh from doing a cover band called the shagwells and so i uh i hit some of the guys up and put put kind of a band together with mark and uh, did a record and actually was it was really fun. We were called Gravy and uh, we had uh, Tony Ferguson, who's a big A&R guy, came out and saw us and he wanted to turn us into Skinnerd. He was like, there's no modern day Skinnerd. We need a new Skinnerd. And at that point, we were into Americana. We were into drive by truckers, Jason Isbell. We were trying to be that kind of that kind of authentic, you know, rootsy country rock sound. And we were just kind of appalled. And the bass player of all of us, I remember, he lost it. Like the Tony Ferguson left, who's the earth guy signed, no doubt. He did like a bunch of big bands. He was still riding high. And, they, and this guy's like, he wants to change us. Ah, oh, oh, screw him. You know, who does he think he is? <laughs> think he's a guy that does this for a living and he's trying to put us in a direction. But I mean, I can see the pushback, you know. So, so we, uh, you know, we just kept foraging forward. And uh, we were doing a lot of local shows. And we played at this place called the Cat Club, which was owned by Phantom Slim Jim, the drummer for the Stray Cats. So Cat yeah. Club, Stray Cats. Yeah. Um, and uh, we played there with a friend of Mark's who was also a friend of mine named uh, John LaLanne. His dad was the famous workout guy, Jack LaLanne. Oh, and wow. So John, That's cool. Yeah. So John was a surfer and uh, and just a, just a cool cool guy. But he used to play play music and sing and play guitar. And I actually gave him lessons for a while. And uh, so we played with him at the Cat Club a bunch of nights. And one one interesting night, actually, we had uh, Quentin Tarantino and Johnny Knoxville came walking in to see John LaLanne because they knew him <laughs> through. And they stayed to watch us. And then we all sat around a table and, and had drinks and talked and everything. And it was really kind of crazy because Johnny Knoxville, he was wearing all he was wearing jeans 
and like a really small jean jacket and a white t-shirt. And then he had a tiny sailor's cap on, but I mean, he was wearing it. Like it wasn't like he put it on ha 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 and took it off. Like he was wearing this tiny sailor cap <laughs> and had all these girls with him and they were just sitting at a table and they watched John and then they watched us and then they were like, come over, come over. And we ended up sitting down and drinking with them. It was, it was, it was pretty cool. So maybe a week or two later, it was like the Nam time. And we played there, and there was this guy named Greg Napier there, and he's a DJ in Whitesburg, Kentucky, which is like kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's the top of the Appalachian Mountain. It's a coal miner town. And he said, you know, I'm like becoming a promoter, and I'm booking shows. I'm doing little southern tours. Would you guys be interested in, you know, coming out two weeks at a time? You'll make some money. You'll travel around the south and play, and I'll play you on the radio, and I'll get my other local radio guys to play you, and it'll be a fun time. So... You know, we thought about it for about two seconds and we're like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> um, so first question is, did Quentin Tarantino ask to see your feet? He did not. He did not. And would and, you have uh, shown him your feet if he asked? Absolutely not. <laughs> My feet. Are... <laughs> That's... Okay. Okay. So how, so what's the, what's the timeline are we looking at here when you got back together with Mark Knight, you did a record, and then you were going to go on your first first tour. Because all that sounds pretty fast, but but I don't know. It was over the course of about a year. I'm I'm looking on Spotify right now because our our Gravy record is on there, and I think it has the year it came out. And um, and who named the band Gravy? And were they a big KFC like aficionado? Uh, actually, no, they weren't. It was 2004 that okay. we did that record. So 2003, we probably got together. Um, well, it kind of came, if you see the cover of the album, the album uh -huh. was called Bone. It was funny because we didn't have a name for the band and we were outside the studio talking and we were like, man, this music is just, it's like, it's so easy playing with these guys. It's like gravy, you know? And as I said that, we looked down and there was gravy bones, a box of dog biscuits on the ground. And we were like, I'm from God. We're going to be huge. We're going to be the biggest thing ever because God is telling us to call the band gravy because we just said that and there it is on the box. And why not call it gravy bones? And so that's that was the name of the record. And actually pretty proud of it. I thought it came out pretty, pretty well. And as you, as you think about that, what was your objective now? Of course, you've, you've been around the block a few times. You've had some, uh, dangling, uh, success rewards in front of you. Um, and you've had a couple of things fall through. Were you once again thinking this is going to go somewhere or were you hedging or what was your mindset? Uh, I thought Mark wrote some really interesting, good songs that had some cool hooks. So I really like was kind of hanging my hat that this is going to be the thing. I thought, yeah, I thought this might be the next the next deal. And, you know, um, I think Mark wants something to happen, but I don't think his passion is just like his, it, it being a business guy, you know, mm -hmm. like making himself big he he writes great songs and he wants to sit home and write great songs or go on the road and write great songs re regardless he just you know he's like a, a songsmith you know he's good with words and he, he puts together like cool choruses and uh makes the songs nice and catchy you know but like i'm sure he'd say the same like we're not business guys we do the best we can you know like he works hard at it i worked hard at it but it's like we just couldn't get the the fish hooks 
into where we wanted it. Like we never could quite figure it out, you know, and that would always be so frustrating because we'd go back after a year of working hard and we'd say, you know, let's listen to a record or let's listen to a live show. And we'd be like, it's so freaking good. How come we can't get, you know, mm-hmm. we can't like X level. And it just always, we were always like chipping away at the stone and little things would happen, but it would never quite become this big magnanimous thing we were hoping you know well then why not just do the leonard skinner thing why not just like why not just take tony ferguson's advice and say well we've done this now for a year and we're not getting any traction so let's try to be this other thing so to answer that question we kicked the bass player out. We got a new bass player, and the next record we made, we leaned in the southern rock direction and tried to do what he said, you know, because we thought, like, you know, I mean, my rationale was like, look, what is selling out? Is selling out being successful? I, I just want to be successful. I want to make a living at this. I really don't give a shit. You know what I mean? Like, what do we have to sacrifice? I mean, we're still playing what we want. We're still, you know, it's not like we're going and, and you know, okay, you know, we're getting tattoos now because this is cool. Now we're going to do this because this is cool. We weren't really following a trend. We were just kind of, we already were a Southern East sound, but the bass player was like, wanted to be more of a funk rock thing. And he had no inclination to be like southern at all. Like when I started pulling slide into the funky stuff, he was like, not happy with it. He was just like, hmm. he would bitch about it all the time. I'm like, yeah, but dude, I love, I've played slide my whole life. I love playing slide. Well, not for the funk stuff, you know? And so we'd start bringing these Southern songs in and he'd ixnay them in practice. He'd go, nope, no, that's not even a good one. We should like, there was a couple tunes that we were like, I can't believe he was like this. I don't like this song, you know? So, so we, we basically regrouped. And then at this point we called ourselves worry beads, which is basically the original name of Mark's first side project, which he, you know, kind of put to bed and so we you know we did the gravy thing and so mark was like hey let's just try the worry beats thing again see how that works out so we did our next record as worry beads which again thought it came out great you know but you know it is what it is we went on tour we did a bunch of tours out in the south with all that and i mean those those were those were some interesting times interesting stories (laughs) so when you're doing these these tours now you have a contact in Kentucky. Are you are you tour managing yourselves? Are you driving yourselves? Or do you have someone with you who's sort of doing tour manager stuff and, and taking care of you guys? Yes. Yeah, so the guy who booked it all, Greg Napier, he was basically like a one-man show. He would uh, book the hotels, book the tour, and then he'd pick us up in a van and he would have the gear rented for us or borrowed, you know, however, however he got it. So we just bring our guitars and like, you know, the drummer would bring his sticks, cymbals and snare. And then we bring our basses and guitars and we just go out there and hop in the van. And, you know, usually it's funny because he would always pick us up in Louisville. And then the first night was usually right across the river in Indiana at some casino. Because he'd like to gamble and he'd always win free rooms. So the first night we'd all get our own room and it would be like at this casino and we'd all go down and gamble 20 bucks or whatever. And then, you know, get ready, boys. We're playing every night for the next 14 days, you know, and we're driving from South Bend, Indiana. And of course, he he, he probably used a dartboard when he set it up because we play, you know, South Bend, Indiana, and then we play uh, Richmond, Virginia. And then we play Knoxville, Tennessee, and then we play Whitesburg, and then we play back in uh, back in Indiana, and then we play uh, Southgate, Kentucky, and then 
Cincinnati. And then we drive all the way to like South Carolina and it would just be like, Oh my God, dude. Like, like, you know, and the funny thing is that I actually wrote a song on, um, on the disreputable few record, um, which Mark helped me write called, uh, the thing of it is because he had this thing where after the, maybe the third time we were out there, we'd get in the car and we'd always go, great. How long of a ride is it? And he'd go, well, the thing of it is it's a, it's basically like 45 minutes away, but you know, it might take us like two hours to get there. Cause I got to do this and I got to do that. And you know, six hours later we'd get to the place and it would just be like, yeah. and I, so he'd always say it. So, you know, we got off the road and, one day we were at rehearsal and I was like, Mark, it is. It's only four minutes away. And he was like, oh my God, we've got to write a song. <laughs> when, uh, when Doping the Void, my band from Germany comes over, typically I will book the tour, right? And normally we do about 10 days or 12 days doing a show every day because they're flying over. And so we want to play as much as we can. And the, and, and the first couple, I would do something similar. Just wherever I could get a show is where we would play, regardless of distance. And then, <laughs> and then a couple of times we would do that. And then gently the guys would say, uh, do you think we could limit the drive times between shows <laughs> so that we can do other stuff while we're there? Because it would really be like drive the whole day to play the next show and then drive again to get, you know, to, and then two days later, you're back in sort of this, the same area. So yeah, I, I can feel that pretty hard. And, and thank God this was the beginning of cell phones because he, he had no idea how to use a map. I mean, literally like there were shows <laughs> We'd be in Virginia and the next show is in Georgia and he would drive to Maryland. And we're like, dude, <laughs> you're going totally in the, are you shitting me? Did I just see a sign that said, welcome to Maryland? Like literally that happened. We had to turn around and then drive four hours, you know, back to Georgia when it was only like two hours away, you know, but he drove two hours in the wrong direction. Oh my God. And then, you know, he always used to have to call the clubs because a lot of times we'd be so late because he and he would drive. I mean, I'm fine with him driving slow with all of us in there, though. That was never an issue, you know, but just like he was so freaking slow sometimes. And so you'd call the club and be like, the opening act's already on. Or like, well, we're probably 40 minutes away. Thing of it is, we're about 45 minutes away. <laughs> so, you know, then we'd we'd pull up and the band would just be finished and we're like, they'd be like, you know, we played a few extra songs. Uh, okay, great. You know, and then we'd hop on. And by the time we get on, it would kind of almost like the bang tango days. It'd be 11 o'clock on a Tuesday night and everybody would be leaving. And it's like, well, here are the LA guys, you know, and that's the other thing in the South, we were the LA guys, you know, because we're not doing like this big extravagant tour. We're playing mostly clubs and bars and, and showing up, you know, with our, our Southern tour manager, booker, promoter, everything, you know, cause he would make the posters, he would make the calls, he would book the show, he'd book the hotels and, oh man, what a time. So <laughs> financially, were you making money then from, from these tours? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was making money. It wasn't great money, but it, it was, it was equal, if not a little more than what I was making to stay home and teach, you know? So it wasn't like, it wasn't like leaving town cost me money or anything even right. remotely that I still, right. I still, pay. like he, he made, he, he would always make sure we, we had a guarantee before we'd go and you know, he would know what it was in the last day of the tour. We'd all go to his hotel room one at a time. He'd like call our hotel and, you know, say, oh, send Mark over and he'd have us like sign a receipt and, you know, hand us an envelope of cash or a check, you know? So that being said, I, I, I heard the last couple times Mark went over, he went over by himself and that, uh, Greg actually bounced a couple checks on him, and that was a big, 
big problem. Yeah, so that's a bummer. Yeah, that's tough trying to, you know, be a tour manager and all that stuff. So was there for you personally, was there any sense of let down from playing big shows with big tour buses and doing this sort of thing? I mean, I know you and I know that you're, you're, you're not that kind of guy, generally speaking, and you're happy to play. But just like career arc wise, did, did you feel like this was not going forward? There was some depression in there, yeah. You know, I mean, I'm human. It's like I wanted to, I wanted bigger things to happen for that. You know what I mean? For the right. gig itself, I thought maybe it'd be a great gig to have things happen. But yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard when I go, oh, the last time I was in Indianapolis, I was playing this big theater over here, and now we're playing, you know, Jim's Bar, you know, in front of eight people in the pool tables right in front of us. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> that kind of thing. But, I mean, we also had some fun gigs. You know, we played in Nashville. We played right on Broadway and had a shit ton of people come in. You know, on Cadillac Jacks or whatever it was called. I'm not sure the name of it. And we played, a, you know, Third and Porter. And so we, we did some some cool shows. We played in Atlanta at Smith's Old Bar and had great crowds there. And, um, you know, I don't know how deep you want to get with all the Mark Knight stuff. But it's like, you know, there was a lot of iterations of the band and one of the the last two iterations were some of the best musicians we, we had in the band. Um, we had Matt Apps on drums and Paul Ill on bass, who I still is my right. basically partner these days. Um, and we did a, that was like, that was the longest we went over there. I think we were over there for over three weeks and we, we started in Virginia and went, you know, all the way to like Alabama, all the way up to like, uh, was it the tip of like, indiana almost illinois and we like we were all over south carolina and it was it was a great time and that was a, a pretty good money maker one too but it was a lot of traveling and it was right. definitely rough on me here's a guy who never is not on a tour bus and never doesn't have his own hotel room and all of a sudden he's in a van with you know five other people you know and we we you know because of the status of having matt and paul in the band we were lucky enough to have a couple texts go out with us that time and so at least we had like, you know, our gears on stage and set up ready to go. It wasn't like breaking our back like we had been had. So that, that was a nice time. But I think by the end of that tour, you know, poor Matt, he, he, I think he got sick and had to take like two weeks off when he got home. Cause it was just like, you know, I think we had, you know, 24 days and 22 shows and, you know, he's not a spring chicken and even government mule doesn't play that enough that much. And when they, they play big theaters and then they get on a bus and stay at a nice hotel and then drive on a bus where he's sleeping or relaxing, you know, and instead he's sitting in a passenger van. (laughs) So I do want to talk about some of that stuff because I think there are some interesting stories there, but we'll leave that for next time for this episode. Let's, let's leave it with the, with the following. Um, So we talked about in one of the previous episodes that Jizzy Pearl from Love Hate asked you to join to go out and support the Dio Hologram Tour. And now I've heard some rumors about the Lemmy, possible Lemmy Hologram Tour, Motorhead Hologram Tour. Um, How would you, so not not being in a support slot, but actually playing on stage with a hologram, uh, would... Would that be something you would be into? Like, I don't, I don't even know how weird that would be. I think it would be super weird. I don't know how much does it pay. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's certainly part of it. But just like the playing part, because you, to me, that would feel more rehearsed, right? You got to hit your marks because you're not, you're playing off of something that's static. 
as, as a musician, I, I think of things two ways, you know, either I'm a jukebox or I'm me, you know, and when I, when I say that, like when I play with, you know, Disreputable Few or the Cruzados, like it comes to a solo, it comes to a section, I can kind of do my own thing. Mm-hmm. But when I'm like Little Caesar or, or other, other bands, I, there's solos where I just, I got to play the note for note stuff. So that, that would just be that, you know, that would be kind of the jukebox kind of thing where, you know, and I have no problem learning a song, like, you know, and playing these parts after parts after part, you know, I mean, that's, that's part of music too. You know what I mean? That's like, that's what a classical musician does. They learn this incredible piece. Not that, you know, you know, kill by death is, is classical music by, by any <laughs> means, but to play it note for note with the hologram would, that would, probably be a challenge and kind of fun to try to do and if it pays well then i'm in right what'd you hear (laughs) (laughs) well let me let me try to put in a good word for you with my contacts with my extensive uh, hollywood contacts now i mean basically everyone i know is because of you so i'm not sure how far it will get you um but (laughs) but i can i can put in the good word for you mark thank you i appreciate that paul (laughs) so that's what you you need a mouthpiece that's the thing (laughs) right on well thanks very much mark it's been a great to talk to you as always thanks to everyone who's listening out there um we very much appreciate it please like subscribe and rate the show it really does help us out a lot we will continue to talk to to mark uh tremalia silent g everyone when you see him on the street please pronounce his name correctly right mark Yes. Uh, and you don't have to say silent G after you say or before you say my name. You can actually just say my name. <laughs> <laughs> what? Really? No, I swear. <laughs> all right, hey, buddy. Thank you, Paul. Th- thanks very much. Thanks very much, Mark. All thank right. And all that stuff, too. So thank you, Paul. Cool. Cool.